Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from a special guest speaker. All right, let's, let's just pray. Lord, may the meditation of our hearts, the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to thank you, KPC. You are our strongest supporter. And we cannot do what we do as missionaries without you. So thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our heart. We love you. Always praying for you. Uh, here's an update on the family. You got that one, folks? There we go. Uh, you can see, I wanted to show you this because some of you know them as being little, but they're getting bigger. And there they are. And the latest additions uh, next are Olivia and Elliot, little Elliot James. So they're our little wonders. We praise God for them. And uh, thank you for being in their lives. You sent us missionaries uh, in 2010. We continue our work at the Institute for Reformation, training leaders and Christian, uh, Christian leaders in Belarus and Ukraine for national Christian transformations. And then also I started the work of I-10, International Theological Education uh, Network that, that Neil mentioned. We have sites in 10 different countries. What we're doing there is training indigenous national leaders to reach a place where they can teach and send their own missionary workers, and then they do that work. And we're doing that uh, among some of the least reached places in the world, including a lot of Muslim uh, regions. I travel regularly there from our home in Suffolk. I was just in, uh, not long back in Sierra Leone teaching, for example, and then an onboarding meeting for some new staff in, in Arizona. And uh, soon I'll be in universities in Ukraine and in Belarus, and in January I'll be in Myanmar, Vietnam, Ethiopia, and in March I'll be in Pakistan. And then after that, I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing. I'm here to preach the word, and I will, but I'd like to begin this morning with a story and some history before we dig into the scriptures, since after all, October 31st, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of our Protestant Reformation. On a sultry day in July of the year 1505, a lonely traveler was trudging over a parched road on the outskirts of a Saxon village called Stadernheim. He was a young man, short and sturdy, and wore the dress of a university student. As he approached the village, the sky became overcast. Suddenly there was a shower, then a crashing storm. A bolt of lightning writhed the gloom and knocked the man to the ground. Struggling to rise, he cried in terror, Saint Anne, help me! I will become a monk! Now there's a little bit of legend in this story but, uh, that we have uh, from historian Roland Bainton, but Luther did make a vow to monasticism in a storm, and later he would lead the Protestant Reformation. But what was the Reformation anyway? Why is it important to celebrate 500 years later? To better understand what happened, let's just look at briefly the context. The political conditions involved church and state conflicts. Who rules, the pope or the king? And decreasing tolerance toward the upper privileged classes. 
in the economic and social conditions, there was an increasing population, decreasing wages, hardship for the agrarian poor, but greater accumulation of wealth at the same time for the rich as society shifted from an agrarian to an urbanized environment. Technological conditions included the advent of movable type printing press by Johann Gutenberg in 1455, leading to radically increased production and distribution of books like never before. And then the cultural and intellectual conditions that were cultivated through this Renaissance environment involved a recovery of classical literature, the ad fontis, back to the sources principle of, of going back to classical Greek and Roman authors, to the new learning of the Greek language, which gives us aid for the New Testament and Hebrew language as well, for a rejection of the stagnant scholasticism of the Roman Catholic scholars in the universities, and then an impulse for vernacular translations, common language translations of books, and especially the Bible, so that people could read the Bible for themselves, not merely hear it read aloud in Latin, a language they, common people did not understand. They could hold a Bible in their own hand and read it. Summarizing so far what we can uh, what I'm saying here, we can use the words of Oxford historian Ewan Cameron, who said, The ancient regime of kings, nobles, and priests was sailing in serene unawareness towards its doom as industrial society gradually emerged to replace its agrarian predecessor. This long-term process was only possible through a vast intellectual revolution. Enter Luther. Especially important to understanding the Reformation 16th century is the religious conditions, spiritual and moral laxity among the clergy, drunkenness, corruption of finance, the abuse of ecclesiastical jurisdiction by the church with excessive wealth and opulence of the clergy and the church as it sought political control such as selling political or church appointments, stagnant irrelevance among the academicians, the Catholic ritual and tradition to a point of spiritual irrelevance, the Pope as the vicar or replacement of Christ, the ex-cathedra policy of the church tradition over and against scripture, veneration of the saints, indulgences which were payments that were being made uh, to the church so that the souls of your dead relatives could be taken from purgatory between heaven and, and earth and brought into heaven. While there are actually many bright spiritual lights throughout the medieval period, to a large degree, the Bible and the gospel message and experience, as we know it evangelically, was lost for much of the church and its people before Luther entered. Not unlike Luther's tumultuous times were the days of Isaiah the prophet. And our text is Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 3. And we can go ahead and bring that up, please. Isaiah, by the way, this is the uh, Latin text as you see it in the 1455 Gutenberg Bible. But don't worry. 
we're heading to the ESV very soon. Isaiah ministered from 740 to 701 B.C., and his prophetic words in chapter 51 come one at a time when the Assyrians were an imperial power and aggressor threatening to overtake Israel, the northern kingdom of God's people. Isaiah prophesied against uh, for repentance for the sins of Israel, which were hypocrisy, greed, syncretism, immorality. All of that summarized very well in Isaiah 29:13, where the Lord says that they will be judged, quote, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. People of unfaithfulness is, are too, too, uh, periods of unfaithfulness are, peri- are, are too frequent in the story of God's people. We see it up and down. Israel's sin led to its exile to, uh, in, in 722 B.C., and Judah's exile to Babylon happened in 586 B.C., where the nation was really no more collected. But throughout all of their history, despite their sins and impending judgment in the days of Isaiah, the Lord saw Israel and Judah as his people, whom he had made a unilateral covenant relationship with. And remember that God himself, represented by a smoky and a fiery presence, walked through the cut pieces of the animals and the blood flowing. He moved through that for Abraham to covenant himself, in some sense, to the death if he should not be faithful, to always keep them as his people and always keep them near to his heart. And we know where that ultimately led. It led to the cross. So while Isaiah's chapters 1 through 39 are almost pure judgment, chapters 40 through 66 are comfort and encouragement and a a gracious, glorious future that he's still going to bring to his people. And tucked right in there is chapter 51, our text for the day. And just after chapter 51, the moving chapters, 52 and 53, that speak, foretell the gruesome slaughter of Jesus, the Lamb of God, to make that covenant possible. The people of Israel had become fewer in number and weaker in strength. And grimly, exile was around the corner for them. Sometimes we feel a little threatened as the church today. But then the Lord spoke through Isaiah in English. No, he didn't, but we'll, <laughs> we'll do it here this way. Listen to me. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. 
He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Isaiah encourages the people of God during a sinful and judgment-heavy era of its history in which the church felt rather helpless and weak in its witness. And that encouragement was to look to the rock. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look is a command, an instruction, an exhortation, something to do. What is the rock? What does it mean? Well, as a metaphorical symbol, the rock is a solid and strong thing. It is aged and tested. It is very enduring. I notice the rocks in my driveway mostly to kick them back into place. But you know, those things, I looked it up, I'm no geologist, they're at least several thousand years old, those little pieces of limestone or granite gravel. And when Ellie and I were on a trip to Canada, up in the Canadian Rockies hiking, I just was blown away by the beauty, the grandeur of these big rocks that have been there for so many, 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 many years, rock solid. Led to worship, even. The examples of, of rock, uh, of, or excuse me, the, uh, before I get to the examples, the phrase I want to look at, from which you were hewn. I want to look at this word, hewn. Hewn is kind of an old word, isn't it? It's kind of a... I like it, though. I don't know. I'm liking it. Maybe it's just the, because it's here. Hewn. My, my mother's maiden name was Hewn. H-E-U-N. Hewn. But anyway, it's an old word. What does it mean? It means, according to the Oxford Dictionary, number one, to chop or cut something, especially wood or coal, with an axe, pick, or other tool. Or two, to make or shape by cutting a hard material. Examples of this exist in the eastern, uh, the ancient Near East. They are homes, battle caves, and tombs were hewn, cut out of solid rock, mountains or, mount, or rocky structures. And the Lalabella churches in Ethiopia, where we do some work, were hewn out of the rock in the 7th to 8th century, or 13th centuries. Uh, can you show that, folks? Uh, f- they're hewn from the surface down. Can you imagine building a church like this? Mr. Bottorf, I mean, the engineer. I, like, they're digging and hewing this church from solid rock, cutting it out. Amazing. And in 1455, Johann Gutenberg invented his printing press using metal movable type that they made through what they call a punch-cutting method to cut or press the letter into the form and shape that it takes. So another applicable idea here is that to be hewn is to be given an identity, a shape, a form. Okay, we can go back, thanks. Our, of course, our identity, shape, and form are from the Lord. 
But this passage identifies Abraham and Sarah as a rock as well. Look to the rock, and then it says, look to Abraham. It's a restatement. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah who bore you. So there Israel's father and mother in the faith, a human father and mother figure in the faith, a rock from which Israel was hewn. And the Bible calls Abraham the father of our faith, and so he is. Romans 4.12 speaks of the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. You see, uh, the, he's, the, he's a rock there, a father there. Romans 4.16 refers to Abraham as the father of us all. And Galatians 3.7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. But Abraham is just a man. He's not the object of our faith. He's a little r rock uh, in whom the capital R rock has chosen graciously to work. Now, ultimately, God is the Father, the giver of the faith, and so he is ultimately the rock. The Bible clearly teaches this. There's so many references to him as the rock in Scripture, and it's one of the oldest uh, and first recorded names of God. He is, in Deuteronomy 32, 18, the rock that bore you. 2 Samuel 22, 2, my rock and my fortress. And in 47, verse 47 there, the Lord lives and blessed be the rock. He's the rock of Israel in 2 Samuel 23. Psalm 19, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 62, 7, my mighty rock. Psalm 89, 26, the rock of my salvation. Psalm 144, 1, my, I like this one, my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers to fight. In Isaiah 26, verse 4, the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Love it. And in a particular way, Jesus is the rock, according to the Bible. Romans 9, 33, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And 1 Corinthians 10, 4, for they drank from the spiritual rock, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The metaphor of the rock has extended beyond the person, the person of Christ to his words and to the revelation that we have of him. In Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Matthew 16, 18. And can you bring this one up? We, we have this one. I want to emphasize it. And I tell you, Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock, the, the revelation that he just had, you are the Christ, the Son and the living God, Peter said. You are Peter, and on this rock of revelation, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Dramatic as it was, this lightning experience that ultimately brought, uh, uh, Luther had was not what, what brought him to his saving faith. That happened in a tower, what they call the tower experience in, in Wittenberg. He had beat his back in self-flagellation with a scourge. He slept in the winter on the cold stone floors with no covers. 
He did his rosary beads up and down the steps of the church all day long. And the result of all of that was that he was no more close to God than he had been before. And he knew it. And he, in soul agoning, studying the scriptures in the Romans, chapter 1, while he was agonizing and reading that text, a bright light shone in his soul and set him free. And it was a revelation that had been prophesied by Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. And here is in Romans 1:17 that the just or the righteous, the ones who stand righteous before God, are there by faith, not by merits, not by works, but by something God did through his son Jesus Christ. And we're brought into a place we don't deserve, but we are there through Jesus Christ. He said, hallelujah, I know the Father through the Son's blood. I'm in covenant with him. And when Luther stood in that strength, with all the Roman church attacking him at the Diet of Worms, can we bring that one up, please? He was urged to recant his position on this evangelical faith, and he faced an almost uncertain execution, and when put to that moment to recant, he said this, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scripture, here's the rock, which is my basis, my rock. My conscience is captive to the word of God, the rock. Thus I cannot and I will not recant. God help me. Amen. The rock of God's words at the center of Luther's favors, famous hymn, and it's, it's my favorite. A couple phrases from that. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, speaking of the devil. One little word shall fell him. That word, he says, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abides, that word does. The body they may kill, God's truth, the rock, abideth still. The point is that Luther's faith was based on the rock of revelation of Jesus Christ in the Scripture. The just shall live by faith, a key kernel among the themes of the Protestant Reformation. And it was essentially a recovery of the gospel that we now enjoy and also proclaim. You can go to the next slide, please. Out of that came what has, in the 20th century, actually, was started using these terms. It's called the five soli, these Latin phrases that describe these realities. They're just the basic themes of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, Glory to God alone. These are the themes. And several denominational uh, branches formed or, or were reformed from the recovered rock of revelation in the Reformation. Technically, there are near, uh, really three reformations, we could say, in some sense, and one scholar or more does, that there's the magisterial reformation, the mainstream with Lutherans and the reformed, that's us, reformed, Presbyterian, uh, or some people say Calvinist, the Radical Reformation, Anabaptists leading to Mennonites and other, other groups, and the Counter-Reformation, uh, where Roman Catholics actually came under 
reforming ideas because of the Protestant Reformation, and it changed them too in some ways. Our own EPC tradition is from this Reformed Protestant Magisterial Reformation, and we have been given a great gift. John Calvin wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, the final edition in 1559. is one of the greatest theological sources from the Reformation time, and we still use it today, even train our ministers uh, in it. Other Reformed leaders were Butcher, Acalampadius, like that one, Zwingli, Basie, Bullinger, Knox, and there were more. And from these Presbyterians in that tradition came to colonial America, who along with Reformed Congregationalists were about 70% of the colonial American population. And we continue today that line of evangelical Presbyterians. This rock of revelation from the Reformation is still in its vital form today among evangelical believers. Evangelical faith was rebirthed in the church, and today the identity of evangelical is defined by a guy named, a scholar named Bevington in 1989, just as a way to sort of consolidate what does it mean to be an evangelical? Because there are a lot of different ideas that people have, but a lot of people accept these, that it means the authority of Scripture, the atoning work of Christ, the cross, to be born again, to have an experience where you're converted and born again, and then to talk about that, to preach the gospel, evangelism by word and by deed, by this well, bringing people to Lord Jesus actively. These are what evangelicals do. Now, you, that's what they did in many ways in the, in the Reformation era, and the word was beginning to be used then, evangelical. I see it in the writings from back there. And that continues all the way 500 years till now. Basically, evangelical then was what evangelical is today in a basic sense. 500 years of this great gospel preaching, activism, conviction of the authority of Scripture, and the focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's us. That's our story. It's about these essentials. From what rock were you spiritually hewn? From what rock uh, were we, KPC, EPC, the modern church, hewn? Identity is uh, important because it dictates action. Who you know yourself to be will largely affect what you decide to do. Today's church culture is often ahistorical and sometimes even anti-historical. But is that wise? Yes, we're always reforming, separ reformanda. But some say all we need is the Bible and the Spirit. But of course, it is the Bible and the Spirit that say here in Isaiah, Look to your historical father in the faith for an aspect of your identity. Likewise, through Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 15, and 16, we hear, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. We have been hewn by Abraham, Luther, Calvin, and other evangelical fathers, and we can learn and even imitate that which is from the Lord in them. It took a lot of effort to hew us uh, out. It took them a lot of effort. Luther agonized in the tower for you. Calvin wrote his 10,000 pages by candlelight with a quill pen, and he was 
painfully ill most of the time that he did it, and he did it for you. The rock of Revelation that is revealed was cut and chopped into the blocks of type for the Gutenberg Press and put into those pages for you so that today that written word can cut into your heart and shape your heart. And most of all, think of it, Jesus, the rock of our salvation, was cut and chopped on the cross to make and to shape you. When we look at this heritage, it it will do something for you. It does something for me. I have the fondest memories. I grew up Lutheran. Now I'm Presbyterian, so I get to enjoy Luther, Calvin, all of it. I just remember putting on my little blue suit, going to the services. My dad sang so loud in those hymns that sometimes I was embarrassed, but boy, I love it now. My memories as a child were my parents doing evangelism explosion and talking at coffee, what they call coffee time at the Andersons about sharing the gospel and all these people getting saved. We were quite happy to be Lutherans and to be in this great tradition. I still have my 1970s living Bible that I had as a kid. It has a big, glossy, silver, green, and red sticker that says, Branded a Christian. I love it. And today, you know, you could think my research topic, Andre Volon, Reformed Political Theology in the 16th Century. Who's ever heard of him? A document from 1572. I think I have some pictures here. I have had an unusual, unprecedented opportunities to take that message academically into universities throughout not only Ukraine, but now Belarus, believe it or not. It's, a, it's an authoritarian state. Thousands of people, actually, I've had the chance to share this message with, and every time I do it, I talk about the Word of God, the salvation experience, and I mention Jesus Christ. And I was working with all these youngsters, like these great people we have leading our worship, and they were doing all the cool stuff, and I was the old guy going into the university because there was only one could get in. And we'd link it together, and many of these young people got saved. They're born again now. This isn't some dusty old book, this Bible, and this is not some dusty old history, this Reformation. It meant something then. They said, we have a hero from our past, Andre Volon, who believed this, then I will step into that and I will believe. So praise the Lord. There they are. You can't see in that picture, maybe you can, there's a little 1517s all over the place. That was the theme of their whole outreach. They used the history to validate the religious experience, and then they preached it. All right, uh, I want to move to, and Sierra Leone, too, when I was teaching on this, the same thing started to happen in them. But let's move to the, my second and last point, and I'll wrap it up right here. The blessing. Uh, keep going. There we go. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. And you see, along with this identity, there is a deep purpose and mission in looking back at the rock from which you were hewn. And that's what the Spirit wants the people to see. For he was but one means from humble beginnings, modest, not our strength. It's a big theme throughout the, all of the Bible, Old and New Testament. Not many strong or wise in the New Testament church. Mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, leads to a great tree in the garden. Salvation is from a baby in a manger. 
A world movement of evangelism comes from just a small number of disciples. God just chooses and works through this little church. That I might bless him, Abraham, and multiply him. And this is recalling Genesis 12, we're very familiar with. In the time of that covenant, it was a covenant not only bless Abraham, but all the nations through him. And that leads to a tremendous healing in the people and in their land and in everything that they do. Comfort is what results from that, it says. The waste places, the deserts, the wilderness has become like Eden, like a garden. And here is where the farthest people out are being reached for the gospel. John Calvin, uh, from our own heritage, had a church full of refugees from all of Europe, all kinds of countries and places. He was leading a missionary enterprise in many ways through the venerable company of pastors to Brazil, France, and, and throughout Europe. He was taking the gospel. He was training and sending missionaries. And here's from a letter in, in uh, May 15, 1553, where he is writing to five of his own missionaries he had prepared and sent who are facing a certain martyrdom. And Calvin wrote this. Since it please him, God, to employ you to the death in maintaining his quarrel with the world, he will strengthen your hands in the fight and will not suffer a single drop of your blood to be spent in vain. And though the fruit may not all at once appear, yet in time it shall spring up more abundantly than we can express. Go to the next one, please. And here he comments on Augustine. For as we do not know who belongs to the number of the predestined or who does not belong, we ought to be so minded as to wish that all men be saved. So, and Calvin writes, So shall it come about that we try to make everyone we meet a sharer in our peace, taking the gospel. And the next one. And Calvin also wrote this comment in Isaiah 2, And indeed, nothing could be more inconsistent with the nature of faith and that that deadness which would lead a man to disregard his brethren and to keep the light of the knowledge choked up within his breast. Nothing would be more inconsistent with true faith, he's saying, than to keep this gospel just choked up inside. And we, of course, have a heritage, and we have a gospel, and we're doing a ministry where that gospel is going out, and we praise him for that uh, I want to conclude with this, and you can go to the, the concluding slide. Everywhere I go, I see the desert, the wilderness, the wasteland becoming a garden. In uh, Ethiopia, India, Albania, Myanmar, that you've heard in the news, Caucasus, Liberia, Spain, Siberia, Pakistan, I'm working in all of them. And I see Muslims, I see Buddhists coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. God encourages us in tumultuous times and when we are not at our best, promising he will rescue and restore us and bless the whole world through us. So look to the rock from which you were hewn, the rock of faith in a person, Jesus Christ, through a heritage, the church, and by an instrument, the scriptures. And being so strengthened, let us today preserve our missionary purpose and always take the gospel to those who are farthest off that they would multiply by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being the rock of our lives and the rock of our church. And may the light of Jesus Christ penetrate to the farthest people so they could stand on that rock too. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.